Welcome to Gross Point Blank. I am Josh Gross, joining you every week as we do on The Athletic and wherever you catch podcasts. Uh, hope you're having a great weekend. It's a quiet weekend for mixed martial arts, which, uh, you know, I guess, I guess we we need, right? A little bit of a breather. We had a big taste in the month of January, some major events, and uh, a little bit of a breather here before we go on this crazy stretch of the UFC. I think they've got a event every weekend between now and April. Uh, and so, you know, if we have a chance to breathe, Bellator's off this weekend. If we have a chance to sort of maybe look back on a first month, look back on a first month that really, I think, will impact what the rest of 2020 looks like, um, it, it seems like a good time to do that, right? Um, a few things stand out about the month of January. And, and I think you have to start first and foremost with uh, Conor McGregor, which is going to surprise nobody, but, um, you know, the state of 2020 and what mixed martial arts may look like could rest on the shoulders of the Irishman in a big way, and they're not going to get off to a possibly hotter start than they did, right? So that 40-second win over Donald Cerrone, everybody's talked about it. It's now uh, been half a month since that happened, but it's still kind of dominating the conversation. That's one of the great things about what McGregor can do, and it's not necessarily like the win or people aren't talking about the ramifications, but it's... The impact of him showing up to a fight creates a discussion. I think we now it's obvious we have like all the evidence that we need. Creates a discussion that's outside of the MMA bubble about mixed martial arts. Not nothing new. Not no, you, that shouldn't be like a light bulb going on when I said that. Okay, like that's obvious. Um, but we know when McGregor fights, and even now in some of the bigger fights, it doesn't even require McGregor. But him in particular, um, he's someone that I think kind of just creates an air of opinion. Everybody's got an opinion about Conor McGregor. So if you're a sports guy, if you're a major sports columnist, if you're on TV, if you're on radio, if you are doing podcasts and you have a big audience and you don't normally cover MMA, you're covering Conor McGregor because everybody's got to know your take, right? I mean, you can't you can't sort of live and breathe in this world without offering a take on, on Conor McGregor. And sometimes we get ourselves in trouble with this. Of course, I'm kind of speaking about and building up to this idea that um, big names from outside the fight world felt compelled to speak like with authority on Conor McGregor and mixed martial arts uh, in the month of January. And that's an interesting thing whenever that happens, right? Um, people care about it. There's the recognition that people care about it, and then they chime in. The thing is that for the mainstream people who are going to hear those takes in one ear and out the other, but for people like you who you're probably listening to this show, you're probably among the group of people who that just doesn't go in one ear and out the other, right? It sort of sticks in a little bit. And you're like, well, what are you talking about? And who are you? And why do you have the authority? These are all kinds of things and feelings that mixed martial arts fans have adopted over the long run, over like for real, like over the long run when this sport was persecuted, uh, vilified by politicians. Uh, you know, it was thrown off uh, means of making uh, money like pay-per-view and the cable industry uh, attempted to boycott. It, you know, there are people who feel about mixed martial arts um, that like they have to protect it. And, you know, I people have come like over the years, people have talked to me like I'm one of those guys like, oh, you've done a, such a great job like building up MMA. I, I never looked at it from that perspective. Of course, like I was along for the ride. I saw this thing go from underground where no one was covering it to um, some people paying attention a little bit to, oh, my God. We, like we have to be on board this deal now. Uh, there's no question. There's an audience. 
no question that people want to know what's happening with these fighters. And so we have to participate. Um, all of that's great. Okay. But sometimes you guys hear a take or opinion that you don't agree with and you let the, you let the other side know, don't you? You, you let the other side know. So Stephen A. Smith got into this deal with Joe Rogan. Uh, they had sort of not even a back and forth, but a reaction to a comment that Smith made. And we've all talked about it and we've all sort of tweeted about it in our own ways. And, um, you know, the gist of it uh, after the fight was that to a lot of people, it sounded like Stephen A. Smith was saying that Donald Cerrone gave up, right? He actually said, it looked like to me he gave up. And so most people are going to take that as quit. It's like no-showed, it took an easy way out. And it's sort of like that cuts against the grain of, of what a lot of people are going to feel about what fighters do in mixed martial arts, what happens in the UFC, and what Donald Cerrone's been his entire career. Like, no question about that, right? Um, that's why a lot of these times when these people with these voices, these mainstream authoritative sports voices pop in, it's kind of like a gaffe. It's like a gaffe machine. And I, I, I don't know, I'm not sure that I would call what Stephen A. Smith said as a gaffe, right? Um, I, I don't know that it was that. It, it, I think it was, it was something that, um, you know, he had a point. Let's not forget his perspective, right? He's coming from a perspective of sports supremacy, like covering NBA championships, whatever championships he wants for ESPN, opining on anything, the highest of the high. He's a guy with a license to tell people like that that they choked or that they didn't show up, right? So that's kind of his wheelhouse in sports. And so when he comes in and talks about a guy like Donald Cerrone, um, who is not playing sports and we all recognize the difference and he should have recognized the difference in the way that he made this comment. Uh, but that's his perspective. That's, that's like, you know, it's a, it's a sports point. It's a point about choking in the moment, right? By making it, Smith basically said that anything Conor McGregor did in the fight like was discounted because Cerrone no-showed. And that was unfortunate, right? Because he saw a loser first and it colored his opinion of what McGregor's performance was. And that's also filtered into this discussion. But it, it wouldn't be a discussion if it weren't for Conor McGregor's role in this. And like the, the amount of media that he can drive and the conversation around these things. Like I would say overall, it's probably a net negative because the conversation isn't edifying. Like people aren't really learning much. There's a back and forth and, you know, I, I'm going to stick to my guns and this sort of thing. Fine, whatever. You know, OK, it really doesn't matter. The take machine doesn't matter. Um, people are going to recognize Stephen A. Smith as someone who's an authority on MMA or not based on their choices, their view of the world, their interpretations of things. A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't look at him that way. And fair play to him, he doesn't look at himself that way. Although I will say that I, you know, I was uh, UFC 41 in Atlantic City, and Tim Sylvia knocked out Rico Rodriguez, and myself and Stephen A. Smith were the only two reporters who were in a locker room with Sylvia afterwards. And so he's been around the sport. It's not like he's, you know, hasn't spent time around fighters, talking to fighters, being around the action, understanding some of the stakes. So I, it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not getting into this because I care what Stephen A. Smith said about mixed martial arts, right? I don't, I don't think you all should either. Um, you know, it's just a, a man offering his opinion and, if you if you judge it to be if you deem it to be stupid then it then it is 
right? If he doesn't have a point, then then or he missed the mark, then he did. Um, but the kind of the amazing thing is that a fight that happened two weeks ago that ha- that was forty seconds has inspired this conversation that lasted two weeks. It may last longer because the next time that ESPN puts Stephen A. Smith on UFC coverage, people are going to have opinions about him and feel things about him, right? And I don't like I don't mind a critical voice. I actually have like um, said about mixed martial arts uh, broadcasts for years that there's well I always said like there's not enough independence, but generally there's no independence on that broadcast. It's produced by the promotion. The vast majority of times we've seen some examples where it wasn't, and then you know we got some interesting commentary. And um, I, you know I, I have no I have no illusion. Uh, that some of the people calling UFC broadcast for ESPN aren't going to say exactly what they think, but Stephen A. Smith can. The unfortunate part is that people are going to feel like his voice doesn't represent them. He's not. He's not. He doesn't really know what he's talking about, and yet they put him on there for that factor, for that shock factor, for the fact that you can have a conversation two weeks later about a forty-second fight, right? Um. I think there's too much glossing over failed sports moments in mixed martial arts. Think about how much leeway the fighters have that makes it different than other sports. So Stephen A. Smith is like talking about environments he's used to where it's one and done. If you lose a couple times, you're just a loser. Mixed martial arts, that it doesn't work that way. It's the combination of whatever the strains of pro wrestling were from the very beginning of the thing, the roots of this thing, especially in Japan, uh, but absolutely, even at the core of Zufa's business, they hired and paid and listened to consultants or work with the WWF. So there's that entertainment feel that allows fans to be okay with fighters losing. Donald Cerrone lost his 14th fight against Conor McGregor. There's no boxer in the world who could have 13 L's going into a contest against anyone that would be one of the biggest money-grossing fights of all time. It's like a different standard. And I, th- I think I think that's one of the things that Smith perhaps failed to realize, and what a lot of sports commentators who talk about sports on a daily basis and look at everything through that prism miss about mixed martial arts. It's a, it's an interesting dynamic that I think is one of the reasons why it's so captivating for people like you and people like me who have been around it for so long, in the connection that we have to it, right? So if someone's coming in and criticizing, I think people are going to feel upset. But you know what? Donald Cerrone doesn't show up in big fights. That's not like that's not a thing to say to be criticized about. That's a that's a fact. The way that F- Smith framed it, I think, was a problem for people. But the reality is that Donald Cerrone, in some of the biggest, most important fights of his career, fights that would have made him a champion or would have absolutely shaken up the world, he he got crushed. Okay. And it's interesting if you listen to Cerrone and talk about his career and like talk about how he feels in the moment before big fights. He talks a lot about pressure and feeling nerves. He's openly talked about that. I think we see that reflected in his performances. And all that stuff's fair to bring up. But the idea that he gave up, that undercuts all of it. Because he didn't give up. That's not a guy who gives up. He got flattened. There's a big difference. And it's hard for anyone, especially a commentator, and this is where you sort of get into the idea of, you know, how can you talk about it? You've never been in there, right? We hear that. Every reporter hears that. I've heard that. 
you know, and I have a feeling I have, I've done a little bit more training than most people in my day who write about this stuff for a living. Um, I would say that you get yourself in trouble when you start saying people gave up or people quit. I've used language not quite like that in moments about some fighters. Um, and I tried hard to feel like I wasn't being unfair. And it's, it's a hard, it's a hard one. You can be unfair in your language. Absolutely. And I've, I did it a few times. Um, so, it, you know, it's interesting sort of just to process all of this. <laughs> just to process all of this. It's a 40-second fight, right? And we have this big conversation around it now. It's occupying so much of the attention in mixed martial arts. And for what? I'm not sure. But it's a new thing in that it feels so prominent. We've had outside commentators come in, offer their hot takes, big deal, so what? Uh, I remember a time I wouldn't call this a hot take because I'm not sure George Will is capable of it. But when I was just starting my career, uh, ESPN um, in 2002, I believe it was, uh, was out reporting on a story about mixed martial arts and sort of the new phase of mixed martial arts after the Fertitas and Dana White came in. And trying to understand what it was, where it was going. I believe it was the first produced like video package on mixed martial arts that ESPN ever did. And they decided to put me on camera. I was two two years into my career, basically. And um, I got to respond respond to George Will. Like this un- the the conservative columnist for the Washington Post. Right? His take was that mixed martial arts was the harbinger of the downfall of Western civilization, right? And so I, again, I don't, I don't. That's an opinion. Uh, it turns out, I think, I think likely wrong. I mean, that's why it sounds so dramatic, right? But um, I, I don't know that that's a gaffe, but that's an opinion. But that's the kind of stuff that people from the outside looking into this world are going to feel. They're going to feel big things about mixed martial arts. There's no doubt that it connects in in big ways with audiences and and really like human ways, like stuff that no wonder like we're protective of it because it's like sort of entrenched in our, like our being, our DNA, right? This thing is imprinted on us. It plays, plays the most basic instincts that we have. Um, and I'm, I'm glad for the conversation, you know, as someone who was around when, uh, and others were, I'm not like I'm the only one, but I definitely remember it in real ways. Someone who like, had to search out commentators had to, had to like really wonder would, would they ever cover it? You know, I didn't think so. It was like daily newspapers covering this stuff. No way. I didn't, I didn't see it, uh, but here we are. And this is what comes with it. I told, it's, it's only a positive thing. And you know, that kind of really came through in the month of January that with the right conditions and it's going to take a Conor McGregor most likely or some big event in the sport that would probably be a huge negative news story to get people like Stephen A. Smith, Dan Lebetard, and others like opining about the sport, talking about the sport, really taking time, and having debates with people about it, no matter what you think of the sides. That's all a great thing. And uh, January January showed that. And, and I'm this was not a topic I stayed too close about, not a topic I was really interested in discussing. But as I was thinking about January and how January is going to lead down to the rest of 2020 and what we're going to feel the rest of the year. You know, this conversation is sort of lingering conversation and the personalities of these people who are now offering their deepest thoughts 
and that's what they are, right? You're asked in that moment to express something about how you felt about something. There can be good value in that. No question. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to see what the conversation brings us the, the rest of the year. Um, the, the, look, there was, there was a lot to take in in the month of January. The UFC had two cards. They had the McGregor-Cerrone card, and then they had one actually this weekend that acted kind of like a, a prelude to the Bellator event that I was at in L.A., and, um, you know, it was, it was a good night of fights. I think, I think getting used to this idea of the UFC on every weekend. You know, January brought us two cards. We're, we're locked and loaded until April. So it's going to feel like there's no room to talk about events, just pushing forward, big fights every weekend, fights that are worth watching every weekend, I think, for the most part. If you look at a lot of the main events, um, I, that's, that's what it feels like to me. And in North Carolina, I mean, I, I, I think if you saw what, I think if you saw what happened to Junior Dos Santos, um, you have to feel, you have to feel pretty good about like where the heavyweight division may go when guys like Blades are, are, are stopping them to stand up. It's uh, wasn't expected, right? Stop like out punching Junior Dos Santos is uh, no small thing for Curtis Blades. And he still looks to me like he's going to have a lot to say at the heavyweight division. And, um, you know, not the not sort of in the biggest mode of what I was talking about, but, you know, it's sort of setting your momentum to start the year for a fighter. A big win in January can do a lot. Can definitely do a lot. Michael Chiesa did a lot for him to outwork and control Rafael Dos Anjos. And, um, you know, I think he sets up a big fight for him. And he probably, you know, d- deserves a big fight. And he can call out, I think, calling out a guy like Colby Covington. I mean, do it. I'd watch that. Um, one more note on this card before we get on to the next big thing in January. Um, I, I wrote about a fighter named Tony Gravely from Virginia last week. And uh, he was taking the slow road to the UFC, to that next big jump in his career. Uh, had 24 fights as a pro before his UFC debut um, on Saturday. He lost a uh, fight that was really competitive and fun to watch. He got stopped in the third round by Brett Johns, uh, submitted. And, um, you know, I, I think you could definitely see the experience in that fight. It, it, even though he lost, you could see it. He he struggled in the first, really, to get his bearings and handle Johns, who was on fire in that fight. And you could tell that he had been through some rough scenarios in another contest, right? He had been through some uh, fires that led him remain calm and work through the difficulty in that fight and survive long enough to make a bout of it. Um, of course, Brett Johns looked tremendous and, and ends up beating him, but was very complimentary of Tony Gravely. Very, very. And I think that means something you could tell, like the competition between the two of them uh, suggests to me that Gravely is going to be a guy who's going to fight and work to get some wins inside the UFC. And, uh, you know, is he someone who's going to be fighting for a 135-pound title anytime soon? Probably not. But he looks like he's going to be a tough fight for just about anybody. And there's so many of those guys and ladies at this stage of the game. Um, you know, where do they go? It's hard to say. But uh, I'm, I, I, th- I think it shows that the levels between fighters, truly great fighters and everybody else, is, is widening. That, that gap is increasing. And that that's always goes into my idea, and I think I wrote about this as we were getting into January, of like – 
the expansion of like the sweet science side of mixed martial arts. Uh, definitely starting to feel that in the first year here. And I, I would expect the kind of action that we see around the world in 2020 is going to really feel like that. With the elite of the elite are separating tons of talent underneath, but it may not just be enough. Uh, someone who's dominated the sport, and this is the, uh, the next thing that really, I think, needs to be discussed and remembered as we jump out of January and may have a big impact, a big financial impact, promotional impact for fights, for fans, um, in what the year looks like. Chris Cyborg's win last weekend uh, against Julia Budd at the Forum in Los Angeles. It was a fight I, I covered uh, quite a bit, wrote some pieces about it, was there on fight night, um, talked to both Budd and, um, and Cyborg. And this felt like, in the building, a nice size fight. It felt like a big fight environment. The crowd was interested in what was happening throughout. There was anticipation in the arena. It felt like, for a period, the fight could go either way. But then... But then we know, like Cyborg just took over and really reminded us of how great she is, highlighting the performance that Amanda Nunes put on her because, like, how great is Amanda Nunes? And that's the one question is, like, everybody's going to have is, well, they're never going to fight each other again. How does that diminish Cyborg? Does it? I don't know. I don't think from a business standpoint it, it really will. This opens the doors for... A contract I wrote about in a few different ways. I think it's pretty unique and worth mentioning one more time um, that Adi Attar, the basically the guy who created Paradigm Sports and runs Paradigm Sports, represents Conor McGregor and a host of other fighters, put in place for Chris Cyborg. Unique deal. Uh, something that um, sounds like you know he really wanted to do and sort of go out on a limb on and try. And, and I think that's interesting. I think sort of that moment is worth noting. Um, he sees himself as an advocate for fighters. There's a lot of conversations about managers in mixed martial arts and, and how they represent their athletes and what they get for them. You know, he, he seems to be a guy who knows how to model contracts in a way that can make big dollars for fighters who are successful. And he's absolutely done that with Conor McGregor. And he's angling to make Chris Cyborg the highest paid woman in the sport. And it sounds like she's got a chance to do that. Um, the th- most interesting element to me, I think, is the boxing stuff. You know, can she pluck a boxer? Is it Cecilia Brickhouse? Uh, I don't think it's Clarissa Shields. Um, but, you know, can she pull out a boxer who is really considered cream of the crop and have that kind of fight where the public will look at it as like the two best or like the feel of the two best going at it? Um, potential for that, I think, is, is decent on the dollar side. Pretty, pretty good. And that's what the people around the production uh, and around the fighters are feeling and, and hinting at. Um, it was a good win. Good win for Chris against Julia Budd. And uh, I'm not sure what Bud does to close the, the gap that got exposed. Um, maybe a different approach. She wanted to wrestle early, seemed to try and tire out Cyborg, lean on her. didn't happen. She didn't look fast enough for Chris. She seemed powerful at, uh, in certain areas. You know, definitely early grappling seemed powerful. Um, but that's a tough fight. I mean, Chris Cyborg is a great fighter. One of the, one of the greats. Reminded of that uh, over the weekend as January keeps rolling on. Uh, otherwise, in the card, we, we knew now that Darian Caldwell will fight AJ McKee in the semifinals of the Bellator 145 Grand Prix. So um, 
Caldwell looked uh, really, really fantastic. I think one one of his better performances um, in Bellator, even among his title winning performances, uh, determined, aggressive, knew the best way to get the victory and, and got it. You know, kind of really staking out a space as a gritty competitor. You know, just a dog doesn't care, going to show up, fight that kind of thing. Darian Caldwell is is giving off at this point. Um, I, I think for other people in the tournament, they weren't so surprised. Agent McKee felt like Caldwell, Caldwell would win this fight. Uh, Eric Alberasan, uh, who trains a lot of people, including uh, Patricio Pipple, who's the champion in this weight class and in the tournament, uh, he predicted that Caldwell would win this fight. So that was kind of the idea amongst the competitors. And now we see, because AJ McKee is um, unknown enough, but known enough for fight fans to really feel like this is a contest that, that I kind of need to see. Um, interesting to me, and I reported it on Saturday, uh, AJ was walking around with a cane. This wasn't like the good kind of cane that you walk around with. This was a bad kind of cane. And um, didn't really want to talk too much about why he needed it. Uh, but he said that he expected to be ready for a summer fight and he didn't care who he fought and he was going to show up and he was going to win. Um, but if it's something bad, if it's something that uh, required, I don't know, time off or rehab, you know, whatever it is, um, that that's that's scary if you're going in there and you're going to fight Darian Caldwell and your game plan is predicated on movement and unpredictability. And that that's what AJ does. So... This, this is uh, setting up to be the biggest test of young McKee's career. And uh, I, I'm, I'm certainly interested in, in how that pans out. Now, we could have had Adam Borix against AJ McKee, two undefeated fighters. Um, in some ways, that would have been more intriguing. But I, I think when you're looking at Darian Caldwell and the form and shape that he's in, projecting out to the rest of this tournament, um, yeah, yeah. I, I want to see AJ McKee tested by the grittiest fighters in Bellator and he is he is one he qualifies he absolutely qualifies um a couple other thoughts on this card look uh Aaron Pico he will continue to get conversation and as we're sort of projecting out in 2020 he's a guy you project out 2022 2023 still where will he end up what kind of fighter is he going to be what I saw on Saturday after seven months basically training uh, in Albuquerque with the Greg Jackson, the crew there, was uh, a smoother, more stable fighter who understood that he didn't have to get in a firefight to get a knockout. And I didn't see him gun shy. I didn't see him overthinking. I saw him reacting and dictating. And, you know, if he can get in that frame, the, the one question is going to be, can he take a shot? We don't have the answer coming out of January because he really didn't take a shot in this fight against Daniel Carey. But I'm I'm curious about that, and I'm sure everybody else is. Because if he can get it together, you know, Pico could be one of those guys when he's 23, 24, uh, contracts up. You know, go go to a PFL, win that tournament, or go into the UFC. If it, if it seems like he's figured out some of the things that really ailed him going on early, he is that talented. He remains that determined. He does. So I don't, I don't think people are going to stop talking about Aaron Pico, especially um, in 2020. And uh, Bellator is, is happy, I think, to 
provide some life to his career and still perhaps capitalize off the big financial commitment that they made to him early on. Uh, last thing on um, 2020 from reading Tea Lives in January for Bellator. Actually, it won't be the last thing. The second to last thing. Um, a lot of talk when I was in Hawaii about a flyaway Grand Prix with the women. The uh, Elimelay McFarlane weight class. Uh, Coker seemed on board for that. People were really sort of mapping them out, saying, oh, there's enough talent here. We can do this. But it feels like they're going to move off that and go to 135 for the men. And um, I think it's hard to argue against that. Hard to argue uh, against the bantamweights being strongly considered for a tournament, uh, which I think you have to feel would be like highly competitive and compelling. Uh, bantamweight is probably one of the Bellator's best weight divisions. It always has been. Um, you could probably make a case it's better than featherweight, uh, which is very, very good. Um, I think we were reminded of the depth of the division on Saturday as well when Sergio Pettis really showed up and offered a violent knockout in his uh, Bellator debut. He's only 26, right? It feels like Sergio Pettis has been doing this for 55 years. He's 26, and he's just coming into, into his own as a physical force, right? Uh, lots of experience, been in big-time fights, faced some of the best. Uh, you could see him really excelling in Bellator, but I don't know that that means that he dominates Bellator. That, this is kind of like the question why this division is now highly intriguing to me because we know how good Sergio Pettis can be, but it doesn't mean that he's going to come out ahead because you look at some of the guys that they have under contract, um, lots of highly talented bantamweights. I want to see Sergio Pettis uh, in a tournament with Juan Archuleta, Patrick Mix, you know, if Pitbull, Patricio Pitbull and Caldwell, who fought at 35 and had a belt there, if Pitbull decides, like, I can make 35, put him in the tournament. Uh, James Gallagher, uh, guys like Caspell, Weber Almeida, and maybe some others who come along. But I, I feel like that would be the right weight class. And um, we saw some signs of that, uh, just some discussion that Coker was sort of hinting at, something to pay attention to. Um, and the best part about it, and the reason why it makes so much sense, is that Kyoji Horiguchi is rehabbing from a torn ACL, right? He had surgery for a torn ACL. Um, by the time a tournament like this plays out, he should be back and ready to fight. And I I couldn't think of many better fights than a winner of this tournament if it's one of the fighters that I mentioned, especially if it's a guy who's unbeaten, like a Patrick Mix, uh, who's a known commodity like Pettis. Although if Pettis walks through this tournament, I think that sort of really it undercut some of the argument about uh, how good the Bellator bantamweight division would be, which is one of the reasons why I'm also interested in how he does. Um, if someone like Darian Caldwell, who was the champion in this weight class, comes back and gets another crack at Horiguchi, I mean, I, if you're in Europe, if in Ireland, and somehow James Gallagher comes out of a tournament like this, that's huge. But Bellator is highly focused on Ireland. So, you know, this is a... Uh, this is, I think, the way that they're going to go, and it's, it'd be a, a good deal. And um, some signs of that as we head out of January into the rest of 2020. Uh, big news, I think, that was under the radar in uh, January. Uh, saw some coverage of it, um, and understandable because it's kind of like an esoteric thing. And I don't know how 
big a deal it'll be in Europe, like in the long haul, but this is good for mixed martial arts, is that uh, finally uh, the government of France has recognized mixed martial arts as an official sport that it wants to regulate and oversee. Uh, it has placed mixed martial arts under the boxing federation. There was a lot of federations vying for control over mixed martial arts. Understandable because basically mixed martial arts, other than boxing, is the most lucrative, successful, viable, marketable, sellable, and bankable combat sports there is. You you would want the you want want a piece of that, right? Uh, so boxing gets the piece. Uh, there's a lot of interplay between karate and judo and pancreation and wrestling. They all want it. They all they all wanted the piece, but it goes to boxing. What that means in the near term and the long term, hard to say. Uh, very politically driven process. This move to French regulation, including some um, influence by American promoters. Bellator was certainly part of the discussions. The UFC absolutely were part of the discussions and what this looks like, how it plays out. Uh, IMG uh, had a rep there who is on behalf of the UFC. IMG's involved with WME, of course. Uh, and the UFC supported IMMAF, uh, one of these many sanctioning bodies that kind of sounds the same, uh, was also part of the process. Um, I, I Look, I think uh, the opening up of France is a big deal and helpful for mixed martial arts in Europe and a great thing and all the people that have been working for it over the years, including people like Bertrand Amasu, whose brother Carl was a, a high-level fighter, fought in a lot of big promotions around the world, um, and other French athletes and uh, competitors who believe so much in mixed martial arts. You know, they, they should feel really positive coming out of January 2020 when everything now is clicking and we have these wheels in motion that had been stalled and nowhere near in sight for so many years. So they got to be excited. And that's something for you to watch the rest of the year when that country opens up, what that looks like, which promotions really jump out ahead. There are going to be some promotions that maybe you haven't heard of that try and do some big things in France before a UFC or Bellator. And, uh, you know, regionally, I think uh, uh, definitely something to watch. And I'm not sure that this is going to be able to be controlled by one group or another or anything like that. I, I, th- I think I think France is probably a place where UFC and Bellator will have a presence. And Bellator certainly feels like Europe is um, uh, an area of the world that they can figure out and monetize and work it. Um, and they've been doing that. The last thing here is I get out of sort of breathing about January 2020, which I, it's Hard to believe it's gone by this fast. I can't, I mean, it's like a month down. Um, you know, so much has happened in this month. And, uh, not, you know, well beyond the mixed martial arts side, of course. But think about how much stuff is going on in the world, how much stuff is going on in your life. And yet, you know, we get consumed by the conversation around mixed martial arts. There's so much happening in our life. I guess I guess MMA can be that distraction for people. It's captivating enough. Maybe the stakes feel important enough, right? I sort of referenced earlier about the pro wrestling connection, which to me trivializes it, but it, it's so much more important than that. Um, and I, I, perhaps that's part of the reason why we can allow it to seep into our thought process and our conversation the, the way we do. Um, one piece of news in January that I think will have important repercussions down the road how soon remains to be uh, known, but I, I definitely think the fact that Scott Coker is now working under Steven Espinoza, um, that Viacom CBS is putting Bellator, which it owns, underneath the umbrella of Showtime and Espinoza's sort of purview and how they handle sports, 
you think of all the places inside CBS and now Viacom CBS, which handle sports properties, especially combat sports properties. Not many of them will do it better than uh, what Showtime has done. And Showtime obviously has a lot of experience with mixed martial arts and Coker, of course, with Strike Force. Um, everything seems set up. You know, there's the tea leaves are not hard to read on this one. That sooner or later we're going to see mixed martial arts return to Showtime uh, and perhaps uh, several other uh, platforms within inside the Viacom CBS world, and there are plenty to choose from. Um, so that was something that as we built up to Bellator 238 over the weekend, Scott Coker talked a lot about. They did a press day, a media day at Paramount. And, you know, he referenced, look, I'm taking meetings with people in offices over there and they want to know about fighters and putting them in projects. And this is different. I've, I've tried to talk about it. This is, this is different than the strike force days. Viacom CBS own Bellator, Right. It is their property. They own it. They are uh, so inclined to try and help this thing grow and now position it in a way that will appeal to a network that mixed martial arts fans knew and, and a lot of them really loved. And if you think about all those great fights that were on Showtime, including some of the Challenger series, all the fighters that rose up out of that, you know, the the possibilities, they, they, start, they start to start really twirling and rolling on one another, don't they? I mean, it's this compounding factor of the potential of what mixed martial arts may look like. January showed us uh, a lot of pathways and a lot of things I think that uh, we will take away from uh, 2020 started in earnest uh, in January. It was, a, it was a wild month and a month uh, worth reflecting on, and I'm glad I had a chance to do that here. Uh, we will get back to the fight discussion next week because John Jones and Dominic Reyes happens. And I want to leave you with this uh, sort of parting thought. If you made it all the way through me opining on all of this and talking about this, thank you. I want to leave you with this uh, uh, thought um, to, to take with you um, as a possibility. What happens if uh, Dominic Reyes beats John Jones on February 8th? Yeah. Is it that crazy? Is it? I mean, I, I don't know. What happens if he does? Uh, I think that's something uh, worth exploring in your mind and, and, and really would add to the feelings around that fight and the drama around that fight. That idea that John Jones is just not in another walkover. Not not this time. And what happens if it goes that way? I mean, that's uh, that's fun to contemplate. And we will be back uh, with you to do that next week. I am Josh Gross. You've been listening to Gross Point Blank on The Athletic.